What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast presented by House Enterprise. As always, I am your host, Jared Magazine, just your neighborly normal guy with a lazy eye here connecting with people who have incredible stories to tell. Sorry for the absence last week. I was out of town in a very busy town called San Francisco. I was out on the West Coast and in enemy territory if you're a Boston Celtics fan. Hopefully we can turn it around here tomorrow in Game 6 and close it out in San Francisco Game 7. I will say uh, last week I did also get the chance to connect with former uh, Normal Guy Lazy Eye ho- um, guest of the show, uh, Nathan Critchett and Kiefer Meehan, the Loom Boys. They were here in Boston. It was so great to see them. So absolutely shout out to those guys. Thank you so much for, for hanging out with us. But this week we have an incredible incredible guest of the show someone who i've wanted to have on the show since creating it never knowing when the best time to have her on was i always feel that when i know the person pretty well or i've known the person for long enough like i've known this next guest i want to do the do the episode justice and i was so excited the timing was perfect her story is amazing you're going to be absolutely blown away by this magnificent individual i'm of course talking about ella easton ella is a former U.S. uh, national team swimmer. She has four American records. She's a 12-time national champion. Her list of accolades at Stanford University would take an hour to list, and I'm not even exaggerating. I'm so excited for her to come on and share her story because it is one that really, as she puts it, and as we titled this podcast, Challenge Accepted. No matter what the world threw at Ella, she took it head on. She did not think anything was at a disadvantage. She always took the challenge head on. So very excited to introduce you to a dear friend of mine. So without further ado, here is the one and only Ella Easton. This is the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. Well, everyone, I love nothing more than having friends on this podcast. And one I have been excited about for a while is here today. Ella Easton is a four-time American record holder, a 12-time national champion. Her swimming career for the Stanford Cardinal will go down as one of the most decorated for the university. Ella graduated from Stanford in 2019 and began pursuing her professional swimming career. She represented the Los Angeles Current in the inaugural season of the ISL. While preparing for Olympic trials, she endured a long health battle with dysautonomia, putting a pause on her swimming goals. Now Ella is on a mission to raise awareness for this extremely not talked about disease and share her story all while pursuing her career in medicine at Stanford Medical. So to sum it all up, this woman is unstoppable. Ella, welcome to the show. It's so good to see you. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have been looking forward to this and It's so fun to connect with old friends um, after so many years of, you know, time (laughs) flying by and um, it's great to touch base. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you and I go way back. Do you, I I want, I want the people to know it's been since like 20, we've known each other since like 2013 when we were the OG members of the junior board of directors for the Jesse Reese foundation. How, I mean, it's been almost 10 years. How insane is that? It's, it's nuts really really crazy and I think the coolest thing is we've been able to see each other kind of grow into adults um you know move past our passion that we shared which was swimming and also 
um, everything that we did for Nigu. And um, it's, it's really great to see you again and see like how far you've come and um, discuss some of the things that I've been able to do too. So absolutely. So we never swam for the same team, but we did have one very memorable practice together at the Kodo pool. Do you remember what I'm talking about here? (laughs) Yes. Oh, I remember. So, so for those that don't know, obviously that weren't there, I feel like there's going to be a couple of listeners that were, there was, I, I, so you were in town, you were at the Jesse Reese foundation, um, the golf classic here at at Cota de Casa and you, you wanted to practice with us. So obviously our beloved friend, Todd Conrad, shout out coach Todd, um, just put you like, just put you on this pedestal. And I remember she said, he was like, Ella's coming to practice. And for like the younger people in the group, like they told, like he was telling them all about your swimming career. And I was like, Ella's coming to kick my butt and it's going to be a disaster. And this, and this practice is definitely going to be like him trying to show off. And that's exactly what (laughs) happened. And we did those variable rest fifties where it was just off the blocks, 50 sprints the whole time. And I remember you, I let you go in front of me, but you got up on the block one time and you looked back at me, you go, when will this end? And I go, never. <laughs> <laughs> it was never going to end. <laughs> you put me on blast. So I had to show up. <laughs> you did. Oh, and you did. <laughs> oh, it was such I a fun time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Good memories. Great memories. So obviously we have a lot to talk about, but let's Let's everyone kind of get the beginning of your story. You come from a family of outstanding athletes. Your father played college and professional basketball. Your grandfather was drafted in baseball and your grandmother was one of the first female professional golfers. And of course, your younger sister, Emily, swam for the University of Michigan. I can imagine growing up, you kind of went through the gamut of sports. So how did you land on your love for swimming? It's so funny. People actually always assume that I kind of tested everything out before I settled on swimming. Um, But it's not shocking probably to our swimming listeners that um, the land is not the safest place for me. (laughs) And my naturally, because my dad played basketball, my parents put me in basketball, um, Mm. thinking that you know, genetics would carry me, um, through that sport. Um, and that did not prove to be the case. My dad said that I pranced on the court, um, that I wasn't very good at catching the ball because I was afraid of it hitting me in the face. Um, fair, granted, I was only fair. six years old. That's but, fair. <laughs> the one advantage that I had over everybody at that point was my height. And so I was able to block people's shots, but I didn't run well. Um, and, didn't really like contact sports and full disclosure I also would always get really frustrated on team sports um I loved volleyball that was like one of the other sports that if I like had a choice to do things over again I would maybe play volleyball a little bit longer than I did um, just because I enjoyed it so much I had this dream as a little girl of being like a professional like beach volleyball player those are the coolest athletes at the Olympics, right? Like, I mean, I you got to get, you got to, I mean, you look shredded, you're tan, you're sandy, like, and swimmers just don't get that. They yeah. get, you they get, get the skin tight suits. Yeah. yeah. The beach exactly. every day. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, dream validated. <laughs> yes. Um, my roommate actually this upcoming year is a beach volleyball player. And I told her this right away. And I was like, I will now be channeling you and I need you to teach me everything, you know, I love that. Um, but Anyways, I I wasn't a huge fan of team sports. It was always frustrating to me when 
um, others, I guess, would do things that I wasn't necessarily wanting them to do, like right. miss a goal or, <laughs> you know, Very frustrating. so I mean, I get really frustrated on myself when I make those mistakes and I didn't necessarily know how to, you know, filter that frustration for others. And my parents put me and my sister in the water really, really young. I, I knew how to swim, you know, at 12 months old. Um, mm. We live in California and there's pools everywhere. And so water safety is a huge concern. Um, I didn't start competing until about age five when we joined a neighborhood swim team that my, um, my grandparents' neighborhood. And I fell in love with it right away. It was like, I was control. I was in control of like my success. It only depended on me. Um, I was really competitive and it felt pretty natural for both me and my sister in the water. Um, but the biggest thing was we made like immediate friends. And mm -hmm. my first friend on that team is still my best friend to this day. Um, and we enjoyed our entire summer every day, every weekend on that pool deck, um, eating shave ice and cup of noodles and gummy worms before I would race. Obviously. Um, and I just have such good memories of summer league swimming and that kind of, um, set me on the trajectory that I eventually followed through 19 years of a swimming career. Um, and I immediately saw kind of positive feedback in the sport. And so once I started, I actually never stopped. Um, there was a period there where I was trying to play volleyball at the same time. But when my coach told me that I was going to have to miss swimming practice to go to a volleyball game, and I was like not wanting to miss swim practice, um, I, I knew it was kind of the sport that I wanted to put all of my investment in. And so by sixth grade, I was only 11 years old, but I was all in already um, in swimming. I love that. When would you say then, obviously you're, you, you were committed to swimming at a pretty early age. I think I, I started swimming. I, I did the reverse. I tried everything else. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be the star flag football player. Didn't get in, you know, didn't play. So I was like, okay. And like much like you land sports were not my strong suit. Um, but so I started swimming at 10, like very start summer league style starting. Uh, but when would you say like, you were like, Hey, this is something that I want to pursue more from a like professional career or where was a point where your friends, your family, your coaches were like, Hey, like you've actually got something going here. Honestly, really young. Um, I think after my second year at summer league, it was pretty clear to my summer league coach that one, I was very invested in what I was doing and I was very hardworking, but two, that I somehow had a leg up over the majority of the competitors that I had, um, in the swimming league at least. And yeah. from my first season on the North park riptide, which is the team that, um, started everything for me. Um, I broke, you know, every single team record, um, each, each season in my events. And, um, that felt natural to me at a young age. And I think that that's kind of what kept, it felt natural every time I got in the pool was mm -hmm. you should just try to break a record. And, and I quickly got very excited about that. Um, and when my coach suggested that I pursue club swimming at the mere age of seven, <laughs> um, I was like, Oh, that means I can swim like during 
the winter now too, not just during the summer. And that was very exciting to me at the time. Um, And I made even more friends and some of my summer league friends started to join club teams. And then my parents were, you know, totally invested full time with me and my sister. Um, And I, I would say by the age of nine, when I was starting to break national age group records, um, that was when it was kind of clear to at least my parents that um, I could have the ability to, to do something pretty special in the sport. Um, even if it was just at a young age and I didn't continue, it was like, oh, well, I went the fastest that any nine-year-old has ever gone. And yeah. um, that's like pretty crazy when you think about it. Um, and I continue to, you know, strive for breaking more and more records and that kept me going and, um, kept me motivated. And I honestly didn't, I didn't put too much pressure on myself. I don't think at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just kind of what I wanted to accomplish every time. And, and I was enjoying it, you know, all the way up until I started to have some hurdles that I, had to get over later towards high school when things get challenging in life in addition to, um, in sport. So, yeah, I was going to say what I love about that is when people bring up the fact that like, you know, I was a childhood prodigy or I was breaking national age group records at the age of nine, there becomes that pressure of you have to amount to something bigger and better and, and just, you know, something that Orange County has never seen, things of that nature, right? But I, I, what I love about your perspective is like, I didn't put that pressure on myself. Like I wanted to do that. I wanted to go break the next age group record. I wanted to be bigger than that. So when it's like, you're not really listening to everyone tell you that because you're already telling yourself, that's the goal. I don't have to hear you tell me that. I want to go do that regardless. Yeah. So- And I think- I think it evolved um, to other people starting to make assumptions about what my goals were. And I, I don't think that necessarily started until I was a teenager, but mm. eventually the commentary began to be, oh, she's our next Olympian, or right. he is going to have a scholarship to college and swimming. And um, once that became the commentary, I think that's when I started to put a little bit more pressure or I felt a little bit more pressure. And even if it was with fully good intention from, from outside, um, like people like around me, uh, they wanted to be supportive and they wanted me to like succeed and, you know, go really far in swimming if that's what I wanted to do. And I think they just assumed that that is kind of what my goals were. And they were, they were correct about that. But once the word Olympics was kind of mm. thrown at me, Um, I never actually muttered the fact that my goal was to make it to the Olympics until I sat down in 2015 with my college coach. Um, and he forced me to verbalize that my goal was to be an Olympian. Um, and so I, I kind of tried to hide that for a long time because I felt like it's a really vulnerable place to be where you say, oh, this is what I want to do with the risk that it may not happen. Um, yeah. And so I think that's when I started to, to feel a little bit more pressure because people believed in me that I could do it. And so all of a sudden it was like, now I have this pressure to, you know, follow through. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a very fine line, right? Like when someone has those type of lofty goals to say, I, I want to go to the Olympics. Right. And you have the talent to do that. There's still that kind of like, I don't know. It's like a, like it's like, I would say like a screen door where like, you could see it. It's doable. Yeah. But for some reason, society's like, 
yeah, but only 0.0001% of Americans will ever get that. It's like, you're, you're, but you're like, but I can do it. Like, I, you know, like I, I'm at least on the trajectory to get to that point. So it's just, it, it, to that point of like that added pressure, I, I myself was never at that screen door opening, but like, I, I just, just from following all of you guys and just being in this swimming community, like, and being friends with all of you guys, like, I know that there's just like this weird gray area or screen door type feeling of like, can I open the door? Or can I just see the door? You know what I mean? Um, and to, to just kind of validate your swimming greatness here, you did go in to 2015 as the number six uh, recruit for our, our class. I would argue you should have been way higher up than you were listed, but that's neither here nor there. But you go to commit and you swim for Stanford and you do have that immediate impact on the team. But just coming, like, go back to 13-year-old Ella, 12-year-old Ella, and having these dreams to swim for this world-class organization at Stanford. What was it like then to finally take those steps on campus and be like, I'm here and this is where my dreams can really start to come to fruition? Yeah, that's a great question. I, one of the most visceral memories that I have um, is when I received my um, offer of acceptance and scholarship to Stanford from the Stanford head coach, Greg Meehan. I sat down at my desk. I remember every detail of this moment. And it, I, I feel like you only have a few of these in your lifetime where everything is so vivid and I can bring myself back to that emotional state where mm-hmm. I'm just doing homework on a random Thursday. And I had recently sent him an email to kind of just casually check in on things. Um, I knew that I had gotten into the university, but I also needed to get confirmation that I was going to be offered the spot and what kind of the financial situation was going to be, which was a big deal for me and my family. Um, And so I am just doing my work and I see this little email notification pop up. And um, every time I saw a coach's name, I'd get a little nervous before I opened that email, but I clicked open the email and it read, congratulations, you know, you have been accepted to Stanford and we would like to offer you a spot on the team and also offer you a scholarship. And my heart just sunk. It was like, like I couldn't believe what I was reading and I didn't even read through the whole email. I just like ran downstairs crying to my dad watching TV on the couch. And I was like, I got into Stanford and they're going to give me a scholarship and I'm going there. Cause at that point I hadn't made a full decision yet. But mm-hmm. once I got that letter, it was like, I realized all of my dreams were coming true in that moment. And all of this work that I had put in, um, you know, it was all coming together. Um, and that was kind of just the start. And it was really surreal when I finally got to campus. Um, and it was really eye-opening. I had come from Southern California, which in and of itself is a really big swimming place. Um, there are a lot of high profile swimmers that come from Southern California. So it wasn't rare for me to be surrounded by, um, you know, high level athletes all the time in competition. Now on a daily basis, I came from a smaller club team, um, SoCal Aquatics, and I had an amazing experience there. I credit so much of my like swimming and my life success to my coaches, Steve McKell and Bruce Furness there. Um, and they've been incredible mentors and, um, they, I was, 
drawn to them as coaches because they were there for the right reasons. They did it in addition to having a day job. Um, they loved swimming and they loved their athletes and they just wanted us to, you know, turn into great people, but they also were able to produce great swimmers. But the team was really small when I first got there. And so I was training with boys a lot of the time um, and some of the younger girls and the environment was different than when I stepped onto campus. Um, right. And I showed up and it was like half of my team has the ability to probably make the Olympics at some point. I'm training every single day with Simone Manuel and Maya Dorado and eventually Katie Ledecky. And I was incredibly overwhelmed. Um, I was not the best practice swimmer. Um, I had a way of turning into a very, very fierce competitor when I wanted to. Um, I think that was something that like I had that a lot of people in the swimming world around me. You had um, it at that practice in Coda, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like the lights are on and here I am type yeah. of thing. Um, yeah. but that doesn't come every single day. Right. And so that was really hard for me because I hadn't, like, I had a sh major shoulder injury that I was working through high school and honestly, all the way through my swimming career, um, that kept me from being able to do push-ups and pull-ups and th that affected my pulling ability. I wasn't making the interval. Like my freshman year was incredibly difficult. Um, I was surrounded by brilliant minds in the classroom. Um, I felt like an imposter, um, which so many people experience when they show up to these institutions, when they're, you know, surrounded by other students that are just brilliant and they don't give themselves enough credit for, um, you know, having their own like ability to be amazing and contribute in their own unique way. So right. I struggled through all of this. It was like, is this a dream come true for me that I'm not going to be able to succeed in? And I had doubts and um, I was comparing myself to others. And it was truly like the hardest and biggest growing experience of my life, those four years. Um, and it, it, it was crazy because I was like living my dream, but often I was so busy, like worried about what I needed to do that I don't necessarily processed it all until it was like almost coming to an end. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it, it definitely is. I remember I was the same way, even just at Providence. And like, I would say, you know, to your point, Southern California, you go to a, a meet like CIF and you're around these incredible athletes, incredible, uh, just incredible people in the water. And then even when I went to Providence, like it's not a Mecca for SoCal swimmers to go to, but I was like, I'm now in front of people that I've never even seen swim in my life. I've never seen their times. Like I, I was just like, but I, but then I was at a big East division one school. It's not PAC 12, but I mean, I still had the same imposter syndrome that you had in the sense that I was like, do I really belong here? Like I kind of was just, you know, I, I swam for Santa Margarita and I was like, C to Grant Schultz and you know like we all we won every single meet a couple times and but then I was like but do I really deserve to have this opportunity to swim D1 so imposter syndrome doesn't I don't think really has to have a scale of like you know you have to be at Harvard or Stanford it can yeah. really just be like I, I get it when I do this podcast like should I even be talking to these people half the time like how did I even get this person on the show you know what I mean so it's I, imposter syndrome is is an incredible like 
phenomenon right now, especially just yeah. with like how the world's been going on. But um, I want to get back to, so your time at Stanford, right? The list of accolades that you have would literally take the hour that we have today, but I'm going to call out some highlights. And I'm not like, like, I'm not gassing you up. I'm being so true to this. Like yeah. your bio page on Stanford's athletics, it like the, the bar just gets smaller when you scroll down <laughs> anyways. So the, you're the, you're the old, uh, the first woman to ever win the NCAA title in the 400 IM considered the decathlon of swimming. There's a debate that if the mile or the 4 a.m., whichever is hardest, and I know just with us two on this podcast, we would spend the hour debating that, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Four times in a row, you won it your freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year. Three-time national championship team member, you guys won it back-to-back-to-back 2017, 2018, 2019, 20-time All-American, and finished your career with four American NCAA and school records. I'm going to take a breath and let that kind of soak in for our listeners. I hate to ask you such a loaded question though, but do you have a maybe one or two memories from your career at Stanford? You talked about how that like moment of finding out that you got accepted was one that you'll never forget, but maybe moments while swimming for the Stanford Cardinal that maybe stick out amongst the rest. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think so. I have so many memories that like revolve around things that don't even have to do, um, I guess with a specific like accomplishment or race or just like an event, like swimming event, which I love. Um, I like, those are some of my favorite. I mean, I spent so much time just like you did with teammates that they're, they've become family. It's like, those relationships will, will never go away. Um, and I think like this one, this memory that I have is a little bit of a combination of like the feeling of feeling so supported by a group of people. In addition to like having kind of a breakthrough moment in my swimming, um, where it gave me kind of a lot of confidence. Um, my junior year, in the 400 IM when I swam, um, a 354 and broke the American record. Um, I was next to Katie Ledecky and her and I had been breaking that record back and forth for the past like two years. Swim Sam had a field day with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. Talk about stress for me because this, it was like the most stressed I've ever been in my whole life when I'm swimming and I'm at the 300 mark of the 400 IM and you have the American record holder in the 400 or like world record holder in the 400 freestyle coming for you, right? The, the best like, freestyler this country has ever seen. We'll just, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. And freestyle is like my second to last, like best stroke. It's like, it's mediocre at best. And I'm like swimming for my life as if there is a shark ready to come after me. Um, But in that moment, I had like a completely out of body experience. I don't remember what I did. I don't remember what my body felt like. Um, But it was like one of those moments where I was like, wow, like I just did something I never thought was possible. Um, And I surprised myself and I got out of the water and like was surrounded by just the biggest group hug by my team. Um, and so much support from my coaches who had believed in me and, 
Um, one of those like moments, I, I look back on my swimming career as a whole. And I think that's something that I'm really, really proud of just because it took a lot of guts for me to even be able to stand up there and believe in myself to be able to accomplish what I did. And that was on it. Like what I'm most proud of is what a lot of people don't know is that was the probably one of the worst years of my life leading up to that moment. Um, I was struggling with a lot of anxiety. My romantic relationship at the time was unhealthy and dragged on. Um, school was incredibly challenging. I was taking a lot of courses that um, surrounded by pre-med students and my parents had just divorced. Um, the weather that year was horrible. Um, there was just so many, so many things that were kind of like adding up. And yeah. I was blown away by my performances. Um, and it was like, it was like the reset that I needed because I was doubting myself the whole time. I was so anxious. Like I had all of these things and I swam and it was like, okay, like you are still here. You are a very capable person. Um, and it actually helped me let go a little bit. And I, I, I feel like I had that accomplishment and it was like, I still had so many goals that I had that I wanted to reach, but it was also like, I felt like I had come to a point where I felt very satisfied in my swimming. And mm -hmm. after that, um, I tried to enjoy myself and my life a lot more. I tried not to get too caught up with, with the little things. Um, and so that was like kind of a, a big turning point for me. I think it goes back to your point earlier about like your ability to tap into that competitor side that yeah. even with everything going on that year, right? I, I think sometimes even I find myself doing my best work when I'm under the most amount of stress, whether yeah. it's in my work balance, like my work life, or if I'm getting on the Peloton, I get like my all time best. If I'm like yeah. super, super stressed out or like, you know, like all that type of things. And, you know, for those that don't know, I was I was reading the NBC article that they wrote about you recently. You didn't just beat Katie Ledecky. You beat her by like three plus seconds. And the, I, I, I'm, if I read that correctly, it was the first time Katie had ever lost to an American in that race. So it's it's insane that, you know, all that, that that's going on here you are that out of body experience, but it's still going back to that mentality that Ellie you have of like being able to just say, shut all that off right now. I'm a competitor. The lights are on. I'm going to dive into this pool and I have three minutes and 50 seconds to, to change my life, I guess, you know, for lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, since I have been done with competitive swimming, there have only been very, there have been very few moments where I've been able to tap into that. And a lot of that goes back to my health challenges that we'll get into soon. But, um, like when I am able to tap into it, it, it's like kind of like a sweet memory of yeah. all of those times that I did that in the pool. Um, and it's like, I'm a proud competitor as a person, not just, you know, in swimming, um, but I pride myself on being able to kind of like take advantage of a moment and just like really go for it. Um, and you know, I've tried to get into running. And so sometimes I am forced to get into a mode like that, to be able to even finish a workout yeah. or on the Peloton, like you were mentioning. And, um, it's, it's kind of nice that I don't have to tap into that, like on a almost daily basis. And it's, 
um, more infrequent because I feel like, honestly, I feel like it's a little bit healthier, (laughs) Um, but it it also makes it uh, more, I guess I'm able to cherish it more. Yeah. I'd love to get to your perspective on this too. Cause I, I felt the same way that, it, and I mean, I, I never represented team USA. So, so you were saying like, I don't have to necessarily go get to that, get to that point in my competitiveness to represent something that's bigger than me, right. Team USA, you're representing the country, but I would even say that I find myself, I'm more competitive just from the sense of like, I want to do this for me, right. Like I'm not doing this for Providence college anymore. I'm not doing this for Santa Margarita anymore. I'm not doing this for the Coto Coyotes anymore, but I'm doing this for me. Like, I'm just like, I want to keep going. I want to keep striving to do more things, like do something I haven't done before, whether it was run a marathon, whether it was whatever on the Peloton, whatever things of that nature. Like I find myself, I'm almost, if not more competitive now than anything, but anything I did in the past. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think like I catch myself thinking, or being conflicted sometimes about it because I don't, when I first stopped swimming competitively, I had to retrain myself and say, you don't have to be exercising hard for two hours to be proud of what you've done in terms of like being a healthy person. Um, So there's like a fine line of like going too far because you're used to just tearing yourself down (laughs) or like doing something that, um, I guess you haven't done before and it's something like personal progress. And so that's also like a really interesting topic, like the transition out of swimming and managing like, um, your expectations for like a healthy person's fitness routine and diet and all of those things. Um, but I, I definitely feel like it's fun to have that healthy outlet of like competition where you can like really, really push yourself physically every once in a while. So I totally agree with you there. Absolutely. We'll have to get on a Peloton together soon. (laughs) (laughs) So here you are, you graduate from Stanford in 2019 with a degree in human biology. Now eyes obviously on the Tokyo games, you had been putting in hours with two other very notable swimmers. We mentioned Katie Ledecky and we, we want to bring up obviously Simone Manuel too, kind of having like a three woman post-grad ultra team right there. Um, but a lot of things changed for you in January of 2020, you had fainted shortly after waking up from a nap from what you remember from that day. I know obviously you fainted, so I'm sure some of it has kind of escaped your memory, but what, what kind of went through your head after that event occurred? So I am incredibly to a, a disservice to myself, honestly, in tune with my body. Um, whenever I got sick, it was like, I would know immediately when something felt off. Um, for example, back in 2018, I got mono mm-hmm. um, and I got in the pool one morning and started warming up and we hadn't even done anything hard yet. And I was like, something's off. Like I feel weird. And I went through 75% of the practice doing everything I could. And then as the practice went along, it was like, Oh, I feel like I have the flu. Like that's what this feels like. Um, and so my coaches were like, sometimes like, you're probably fine. You're probably just tired. And, um, sometimes I would tell myself that too, but eventually it would always come around that I like deep down knew something was up. And so that morning when I fainted, I fainted actually like in the afternoon, but that morning at practice before that happened, I was doing a 200 freestyle practice with Katie and Simone long course, by the way, which is not my strong suit. And (laughs) 
I was always behind. Like there was no surprise that I was like half a body length behind them, like on every 50 pace. 200. Half a body length. Like that's, a, like, like that's a long distance. Come on. Well, <laughs> I know, I know that is for you. I know you're upset yeah. by the half a body length. I know. <laughs> but I was like trying to hold just like 30 points, which yeah. like that was typically the pace that I tried to hold. And I was able to do that, but my bot my body felt so weird. It was like my muscles were moving, but my heart rate wasn't getting up and I wasn't breathing as hard. And then I would start to cramp and it, it wasn't like a normal physiological response to what I was doing. Like right. normally as you get going, it's like, you start to breathe more, your heart rate like increases and that wasn't happening. And at the time, like our um, volunteer assistant coach was the one that was coaching us that morning. And I was, I was telling him, I'm like, something feels really off. We had just come off of altitude. Um, and so I thought I was just, you know, adjusting back into training. I always had kind of like a weird couple of days when we come back from altitude. Um, I mean, we, we just had like a really long training camp right before we came back. And so yeah. I was not shocked that something was happening. Um, but I got out of the water like a little bit early that day. And I was like, I'm going to go take a nap have a good meal, like hopefully wake up feeling better. And I got up from my bed and it was like, I felt all the butt blood from my body just drop to my feet. And so I collapsed. Um, and I don't like actually think that I was like unconscious at all because I feel like I remember everything, but it mm. was like, I couldn't think straight. Like I was on the ground, like on, on a hardwood floor. Like I remember feeling like my knees hit the hardwood floor and I'm like sitting there, like, what the heck just happened? Right. Um, and I was like, so my first response is you're probably fine. You just need to drink water. So that was like the first of many, many wrong assumptions and excuses that I made to like, think that my body was okay. Um, and I, so I told my coaches, I'm like, I'm not really feeling well. I kind of just like fell. Um, I think I need to take the afternoon off. Like I'm going to come in tomorrow morning and hopefully we'll be in a better place. And so I go back in the next morning and the heart rate problems even worse. Like it's not getting above 70 beats per minute and I'm exercising. Um, and so then I start to like, I'm checking my heart rate constantly. My body is moving in slow motion. Like when I tell you my arms were like going like, you know, two strokes every three seconds, like that was as fast as they could move. And I eventually figured out that like, because my blood was not pumping, my muscles were not wanting to work very well. So, um, I could not swim like a real practice. So for a couple of days I swam on my own and, um, basically like nothing improved. Um, and it was incredibly confusing. Um, and that basically started the long rabbit hole of searching for answers. Yeah. And before we get to that, because obviously there's a lot to talk about there, but I just want to go back here for a second. This just happened out of the blue, right? You come down from OTC, Olympic Training Center, which is at altitude, long training camp. Everything's going smoothly there. Yes. And then boom, you get down back to Stanford or wherever you were. And it just just on a random January day. So... Yes. And that was what was really strange about right. it, um, where it seemed to come out of nowhere. Now, looking back, um, a bunch of people that were at the OTC had a mysterious flu-like illness at the time. That was not the flu. So a bunch of us were tested for the flu, um, tested for other things, and everything came back negative. But people were like, 
very, very sick, you know, bed bound, coughing, not sure what was wrong. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we started hearing that there was this novel coronavirus that very was novel. Coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it took me months to think like, maybe I was asymptomatic and, you know, this is what caused this. And I actually didn't come to that, um, kind of hypothesis until maybe six months later, um, when I was like seeing a bunch of doctors trying to give them like all of my medical history, thinking about every single thing that led up to that moment, trying to figure out like how the heck this could have happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and we know now that long COVID, um, which is when people have like either symptoms or effects of the virus continuing to live in their system or damage to any, you know, organ system as an effect of COVID causing them to have symptoms similar to dysautonomia, mm. um, if not dysautonomia itself. And that's eventually what I was diagnosed with, um, whether it was caused from the mononucleosis infection that I had two years earlier or an asymptomatic case of COVID, we will never know. Right. Um, but those are two risk factors. And I had both of them. Um, I also have a couple other of the risk factors for potentially developing this illness, which um, is probably more scientific than anyone needs to know. But um, I was basically the perfect case for it. And 80, per, 80 to 85% of um, people that are living with dysautonomia are women. Um, oh, okay. And so I, you know, when I found out I fit all the criteria. And so it wasn't that surprising to my provider. Gotcha. But so it took eight months to get to, you know, um, Dr. Peter Rowe, Johns Hopkins to diagnose you with dysautonomia. What sort of questions or not, I'm not going to say they're, they were wrong answers. It's a doctor trying, trying to figure out, but they were wrong answers, right? What were you hearing from doctors when you're going to flying all over the country to get answers? What are they telling you? Cause this is something that can be hard to explain. You're saying, I can't, I can't exercise. I'm exhausted. You like, I was hearing stories that your mom said, like you were, you couldn't go to the grocery store without having to like take a break in between. You were forgetting to go to appointments and, th and taking naps for days. Like if I were to tell that to my dad, he'd be like, you just got to like, why aren't you sleeping your eight hours or something like that? You know, or like suck it up. Right. <laughs> but so what are you, what are the doctors telling you when you're trying to figure out this answer of you have dysautonomia? So I saw at first, a couple different providers at Stanford. Um, mm -hmm. I saw an endocrinologist um, and we were trying to rule out if I had something wrong with my thyroid. Did I have something wrong with um, my hormones? The answer is yes. Um, I actually, at the time, um, was attempting to get leaner, um, probably definitely to an extent faster than I should have been given the amount of training that I was doing. Um, it was the last couple of months leading up to the Olympics. And I was at that point willing to do whatever it took, got some advice from somebody that was probably unfounded. And um, just like a lot of female athletes took it to an extreme was not eating well enough, um, actually lost my period. Um, and so when I was getting my initial test done with all of my issues related to dysautonomia, they were also finding that I was also incredibly low, like almost undetectable levels of, um, hormones. Mm -hmm. And so 
The problem was, is it took me so long to get to this diagnosis because I had other things wrong with me that I had to fix first before they were ever even able to attribute my symptoms to anything else. And so I had to start eating a lot more. I stopped exercising. Um, I had to take supplemental hormones. I had to take a million other supplements to try to figure out if my nutritional imbalance was causing all of these issues. I look back and I know for a fact that like, that was not the case that it was, I was dealing with like dysautonomia and chronic fatigue at the same time. And I'm sure those other things were not helping, but it definitely made it more challenging for physicians to get to another underlying issue when there were things that, you know, they thought they had to check these boxes first. And so I tried some things, they made it worse. Um, you know, I tried to just rest and then I would like take a week off and get back in the pool and nothing would change. And they thought I was overtrained. And then after two and a half, three weeks, they were like, you should be better by now. And, um, so it was a lot of back and forth with athletic trainers and physicians. And, um, I even met physicians that essentially didn't really believe me that I was having such serious issues that, I was just having anxiety or Mm -hmm. I was even told that, you know, are you just nervous about the Olympics and you're trying to get out of it? Um, or all of, all of these things that I I look back and laugh because I, so many times in my swimming career, there were obstacles that were put in front of me. And my goal was to always just jump right over them, no matter how hard, like I had to work to get there. Mm -hmm. And so when those assumptions were made that I just wasn't willing to put in the effort to get past this, um, it was like incredibly offensive to me. So it was a really emotional time in addition to being physically challenging because I had worked hard for 18 years to get to this point, to be confident going into Olympic trials. Um, and I was spending months, you know, before that, not knowing if I would be able to get out of bed to go to a practice, um, or even cook a meal for myself or do my laundry. It was like, I was 24 years old living on my mom's couch. It was a crazy transition from being like this really high achieving student athlete to being completely dependent on my parents once again, um, Mm -hmm. as an adult. Yeah. I mean, that alone can be frustrating. Right. Um, And just on top of that, like, you know, people talk about the fact that, you know, once you get right before the Olympic trials or right before you, like, even in any sport that's an Olympic sport or any sport, I mean, we could talk about it in the NBA finals. Like if, if someone, you know, has dreamt their entire life to get to that point, there is definitely that, well, are they just too nervous now to get to that? But like, talking to you and knowing you. And if you've been listening to this episode, that's not Ella, like you were ready for this opportunity. Um, when you met with Dr. Rowe and he did diagnose you with dysautonomia, which I, I forgot to give the definition. It's a dysfunction of the nerves that regulate non-voluntary body, body functions, such as heart rate, blood pressure, or sweating. Did it, did he, when he said, this is what you have, were you like checks out or were you like, I still have so many questions. Um, basically everything checked out. So by the time I had kind of had the opportunity to see him, I kind of diagnosed myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and with the help of a family friend who is also a physician, whose daughter has POTS and chronic fatigue and dysautonomia. Um, she was basically like, I think this is what you have. You should go see someone about this. Um, and 
like I had done a good amount of research. There was, there was actually a doctor that I went to see who had written dysautonomia on my chart, which simply means dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. Um, and I said, oh, so is that what I have? And he said, that's not a diagnosis. He said, that is something that your body is doing, but that's not a diagnosis. Now, I would disagree. Um, and I think a lot of doctors would disagree, but that was his kind of thinking. And he thought there was something underlying that was causing my nervous system to function that way mm-hmm. or dysfunction that way, I should say. And so when I got to Dr. Rowe and he told me you have, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, I was like, yeah, makes sense. I can't do anything. And I'm literally tired all the time. Right. Um, and chronic fatigue syndrome, which the full name is myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, it means that you have unrefreshing sleep. So no matter how much you sleep, you wake up unrefreshed. You have post-exertional malaise, which means every time you exert yourself, you're paying for it afterwards. Um, you have six months of extended unexplained exhaustion. Um, and then the list goes on, but like that is what people experience. Um, and chronic fatigue syndrome falls under the umbrella of dysautonomia, um, in the sense that a lot of people with autonomic nervous system dysfunction also have chronic fatigue syndrome. And, um, there's a lot of reasons as to why that is, but, I happen to have both and everything, all the questions that my doctor or that Dr. Rowe was asking me, like, do you experience this? Most of the time the answer was yes. So it was like, are you hyperflexible? Yes. Um, do you get tired after you do like small exercise? Yes. Have you felt this way for at least six months? Yes. Like, can you stand up for a long period of time? Absolutely not. At that time I was like, I still have orthostatic intolerance. Um, which means that you, your body is not happy when you are upright, Mm. um, and increasing salt, increasing fluids, wearing compression, all of those things can, can help a little bit. Um, but at the time, like I couldn't stand up like without my blood pressure, just dropping, um, and getting lightheaded and feeling like you're seeing stars every time you stand up. I still get that pretty frequently, but, um, you know, everything checked out just, just like you said, it was like, I had finally found a person that one believed me, two had seen it before and three knew a couple of ways that he was going to be able to help. And like, just the sense of relief that my mom and I had after we like our first conversation with him was like, I can't even explain it. It Mm -hmm. was um, really, really like exciting because I thought, Oh, maybe I'll be able to get back in the water. And that's ultimately not what happened. Um, but this took me on a new path that I am even more excited about than I was about swimming. So. I love that. And I do just want to touch briefly on, on your retirement and swimming, um, for someone that has obviously seen you swim, swam with you, watch you succeed. When you put that post out in May of 2021, it came as a, I mean, like, it came as a shock, right? Um, I, I was stunned. I, my dad was stunned. He, like, like a lot of your fans and your friends were stunned um, because a lot of us didn't know what was going on, obviously behind yeah. everything that's happening. What was that discussion like for you to make that decision? I, I, I can only imagine, and I don't even want to have to come up with that, but can you take me through what that was like for you? Yeah. So 
I got diagnosed, um, I believe at the beginning of September around there, um, and was still struggling to finish a practice. And, um, I would get in and, you know, swim in the morning, try to do 80% of the workout maybe, and then have to sleep for like five hours during the day. And so, or I do a whole practice and then have to take two days off. So I was still at a point where I was not healthy, Mm. um, by any means I was starting my new treatment, but progress was minimal. Um, I was still pushing myself. I wasn't giving my body the opportunity that it needed to heal even a little bit. Um, so I remember like leading up to Thanksgiving, I wanted to go visit my sister in North Carolina, where she is currently living with her boyfriend and his family. Um, you know, this is still like height of the pandemic. Um, and it was like the first trip that I was going to make. And I went to visit her for a week and it was the first week I think of my entire life where I just didn't exercise, didn't think about getting in a pool, didn't stress about trying to get a workout in. Um, because I told I promised myself that I was going to enjoy my time there and I needed to take time off anyways, because that was just part of the routine. It was like, try to swim. And then when you really can't handle it anymore, take a break. Um, so I go there and I'm spending time with my sister who also was no longer swimming at the time. Um, and her boyfriend's family who we have become very close with, um, you know, doing fireworks and going out on the lake and waking up in the morning leisurely and sitting on the porch and drinking a cup of coffee. Um, and one morning I was the first person awake in the house and I brewed some coffee and went outside onto the porch overlooking beautiful Lake Norman. Um, and I thought to myself, this is actually really nice. And I haven't felt this good in, you know, 10, 11 months. Um, me taking time off from doing anything was the best thing for me. And I realized, you know, I want to feel like this every day, even if it's not a hundred percent, you know, I wasn't, I was feeling 70% at best at that time, maybe even 60%, but it was much better than I had felt every single day when I was trying to push my body to its absolute limits, um, just for the sake of, you know, hoping to reach my goals in June of 2021 at that point. Um, and I finally came to the conclusion that I owed it to myself to, put everything I had into healing, which meant the opposite of what that means for athletics. That meant everything I could put in was all of the patience and time that it would take to sleep and lay down and not exercise and give my body a chance to heal. And that's where I decided that I was going to retire. Um, I came home and sat down on the couch with my mom and told her that I had made my decision and that I was, um, I was done fighting with myself. Um, I, I worked hard for so long. And so I gave myself the opportunity to give myself a chance. But once I realized it was no longer in my best interest, that I felt like it wasn't fair anymore to, you know, my body that has given me so much, um, it wasn't fair to keep pushing. And so like, it was the most freeing decision. And I, it took me a long time to want to open up to people about it. Um, I went through a long, like 
phase of just like escaping everything from swimming. And I spent so much time with my family and friends and just basically ignored it. And Mm. I saw the most progress of improvement in my health in those couple of months between when I decided and my announcement of retiring, um, that I, I was so glad that I made that decision because I knew that I, there's no way I would have made that progress if I hadn't, you know, given myself ample time to rest. And I think too, just to that point, like you were talking a lot about your physical health and obviously, you know, what the break had done for you physically, but I'm sure what it had done for you mentally is just as important too. Um, yeah. You know, like your mental health and all this was probably on the same level roller coaster that your physical health was. So it's, it's so important to see that, you know, that decision obviously helped your physical health, but it kind of cleared the head on, on the mental health side as well. Yeah. I, I gave myself the opportunity to see what it would be like if I just surrendered. Mm. And I felt like that was actually the harder decision to make than to just try to keep pushing and, you know, fall over the finish line. Um, but I'm more proud of the fact that I, you know, chose to be a normal person and have respect for my body and, like make a decision. I felt like for myself, I I mean, so many people just expected that I was going to be at Olympic trials. And a lot of people knew I was unhealthy and expected that I was just going to wait until the last second to see if I'd be able to pull it off. But, um, that wouldn't have been fair. And Hmm. my, my whole life has gone in a different direction since I made that decision and I would never change it for the world. So Yeah. So let's talk about that direction. Cause this is, I mean, I love your story, but this is where I really love it. You you've, you know, now you're pursuing your degree in medicine back at Stanford. Has it always been your post swimming career goal to get into medicine and to become a physician and and get into the healthcare profession? Where did that stem from? Yeah, I have wanted to be in healthcare since I was very, very young. My grandma was a nurse for almost 60 years Um, My mom has been in fundraising for health science schools and nursing schools for almost her whole career. My aunt and uncle are physical therapists and occupational therapists. Um, A lot of, you know, me and my sister, my cousin, a lot of us are in healthcare. Um, I've been surrounded by it my whole life and always felt like those people um, to me were one so loving and caring and inspiring and hardworking. And, um, I also wanted to be a part of that. And I went to Stanford um, and with the intention of pursuing nursing, um, which I was always very proud of being a granddaughter of an amazing nurse. She started the nursing program at UCI and has also started other nursing schools um, in California. And I was really proud to be kind of a part of that legacy and contribute to it. Um, and I actually applied to nursing school and got accepted. And this was around the same time that I decided to retire. Um, I, in the middle of my sickness, my illness, I guess the peak of my illness, um, I met my romantic partner that I am with now and, um, I'm still sometimes forgetful about things. Um, so one symptom of dysautonomia is brain fog, which means you basically either don't forget what you're talking about in the moment, or you forget to do something, or it's hard to find a word. Like it's, it's hard to explain, but you feel kind of cloudy. Memory's not great. And 
at the time I was um, newly dating this person, super excited. I forgot to submit my deposit for nursing school and they took my spot away. Oh no. And so I had to rethink my whole life after that happened. I ended up getting put on the waiting list and they eventually admitted me again. But by that time I had decided that I was going to go a different route. Mm. Um, and my uh, boyfriend, Lewis, who I have to give a shout out to because a lot of my um, recent accomplishments have um, come from his inspiration and his encouragement and support, he asked me why, or have you ever considered going to medical school? And I thought, well, I've always wanted to go into nursing. That's kind of what I have been shooting for since I was a little girl. I'm really proud of the nursing profession and I want to contribute to it. And he said, I think that you would also be a really great doctor. You are interested in research. You um, know with your health experiences how to be like an empathetic practitioner. Um, I think you should consider it. And I shook my head and I said, you don't just, you know, jump into something like medical school. Right. What is this Grey's Anatomy? Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm like, you don't just go be a doctor. And yeah. he's like, well, you could if you wanted to. And so I d gave a couple phone calls and was encouraged right away to apply. And so I took the MCAT like right away, studied in a fast couple of weeks, um, put everything into it, applied to schools um, and ended up getting accepted um, into Stanford this last year. And I would have never thought you know, even if you asked me like a year and a half ago that I would be in this position, I would have thought you were crazy. And, you know, my intent, this was not my intention, but now that this has come become reality for me, I am so excited about all the opportunities that I'm going to have back at Stanford. Um, and my goal is to be the doctor that I was looking for that, um, is you know unconditionally supportive wanting to find answers um and be exactly like dr Rowe was for me and he was that guiding light and he's the first one to admit if he doesn't exactly know the answer um right now but he's willing to put in the work to find it and willing to experiment with me and be patient and and all of these things that i needed um in those you know my biggest moment of weakness um and so I am excited about, you know, all the education I'm going to get and hopefully all the difference that I'm going to be able to make in people's lives, even if it's not, you know, discovering the cure for cancer or doing anything to that scale, but being the supportive and empathetic person that so many patients need. Um, and my experiences have helped lead me to this. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything because I would not be in this position had I not gotten sick um, and had, you know, the chance to experience chronic illness and disability and be in a position to understand why so many people, you know, advocate for further and improved care and um, more money for research for these things. And, and so I now have the opportunity to, to be that advocate. Um, and I'm, I'm so, so grateful and proud. I can just see it. You have the same 
uh, fire in your eyes as you did in your swimming career. Like I think Kobe Bryant, like the late and great Kobe Bryant said it best when people asked him like, what are you going to do now that you're retired? And he goes, I'm not retired. My career is just starting. My basketball chapter is over, but my career is just starting. And I can see that too with you. And I'm so excited to see where this goes. And I know how successful you're going to be. Just if you have half of the work ethic you did during your swimming career, this is going to be a very, very uh, successful career. So I cannot wait. And congratulations on uh, on starting with Stanford Medical. It's going to be it's going to be fun. And uh, maybe you know maybe we'll see Dr. Ella Easton here very very soon. I do have. Uh, before we get to the last question, I know you got to run here soon. I do want to give you the opportunity now. I feel like I've been berating you with questions and it has been just a few years since we've gotten to catch up. So if you have any questions for me, feel free to fire them away. Yeah. I, (laughs) one question that I have. So a big part of my story is that so much of the experiences that I had in swimming, um, especially towards the end of my career, um, have really shaped my life after the sport. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering how you feel swimming did that for you. Um, and what you've, I guess, taken away from your experience in sport and kind of used it in your life still. Yeah. Um, I mean, I owe everything to swimming, right? I mean, as cliche as that sounds like I dedicated, more than half my life to the sport, whether it was swimming in and of itself, coaching, anything like that. What I have taken, like having now more of it, not a full bird size view, but definitely, you know, I've been out of the sport now for three plus years. I think just the fact that control what you can control, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my swimming career, I myself had mono uh, in 2018, right at Big East, at, at our Big East championship. I I was coming off the greatest year of practice that I've ever done. Like I was doing things in the water that I'd never done, never accomplished. And I was just primed and ready to go. And I just remember first day of Big East, I had a sore throat and I was like, oh, this kind of sucks, but like might just be from like cheering on the relay the night before. And I just remember getting so much worse. Like I finished night, the day one was the 500 and I added and I was like, I, maybe I missed taper. I, I don't even know. Like, I, I, I don't know, but I felt so exhausted. Just like, like I got out of the pool and I like laid down and I was like, this is bad for a prelim. So I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then it obviously got progressively worse. So just I'm, I'm, I'm monologuing here, but to backtrack control, what you can control the environment that you create is what you can control. Right. I think I, I also want to say like, kind of be picky with what you put into your head too, or, you know, be picky with who you put into your lives and things of that nature. Your swimming was such a non-political sport in that it was your time was your time. And if I behind you beat you, they're going to take your spot on the relay. So it's like the environment that you put yourself in, I think is going to how it's how I've lived my life recently at a post swimming, whether it's in a sales job or this podcast, you know, just like take the things that you can control and uh, put that into your everyday life. So that's what I've gone from swimming. Obviously the lifelong friends and the, um, I think some of my clothes still smell like chlorine, but. (laughs) (laughs) It took me about six months to stop smelling like the pool when I would exercise. So I know I literally like I'd I'd sweat and I can like feel the the chlorine burn. I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) I wanted to also mention that I, truly appreciate you bringing me on the podcast. It's been like so wonderful to reconnect. And um, I also wanted to 
if others were interested, um, check out my new website, um, disunderstood.com. Um, I'm going to be posting about it on my Instagram, but it is a new place that I'm hoping to create um, a space for those with chronic illness, disability, dysautonomia, um, to have their voice heard and tell their stories in the way they want them to be told. Um, I will be kind of starting up by sharing a lot of my story, trying to be really open and vulnerable, like you have allowed me to be today, um, and share my experiences and, and hopefully um, inform some new people about this illness. And as I move into my the medical field, um, I'm hoping that this is something that I can continue um, in a more casual setting instead of, you know, throwing research papers <laughs> at you. Um, just sharing my incredibly challenging but life-changing experience. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate you all and for listening. And thank you so much, Jared, for having me. And maybe we'll we'll reconnect in a couple um, more years and yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully before an another yeah. six, seven years or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. So I'm not letting you slide yes. out of this one. And I think that you, and I, I definitely encourage people to go check out the brand new site. And maybe this might be the answer to this question, oh, okay. but Ella, if you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title of it and why? This one gets them all the time. You know, the long pause is going to, it's going to need to be longer. <laughs> uh, we had someone who asked if I could pause the recording and we sat for another like five minutes. I won't, I won't say who that person was, but the person knows who they are. <laughs> I think the title would be. feel like it's easier to think of a quote or something um <laughs> another wow. stanford student had a hard time with this question as well <laughs> i think it's a stanford thing and uh you know who that stanford student it's, is it's the perfectionism in me i don't want to give <laughs> answer there's no uh, such thing as a bad answer come on it's I your know, autobiography and it's not like i'm putting it on i'm not tattooing it to your body here I know, you, you I can know. change it if you I write the story it's, um challenge accepted oh, i love that i love that one great answer thank you why so tell us why tell us why challenge accepted so I was actually um, a mentor for a um, site that supports female um, athletes. And there were a bunch of hashtags that we were able to choose from that we felt like described um, us or our experience. And I feel like a lot of the challenges um, that I have faced have really shaped me. Um, and I feel like I have embraced them, which is something I'm really proud of is even if something has not gone my way, I've tried to reframe them to get the most out of my experience and grow from everything that I face. Um, and so it's gone to the point where I welcome a challenge because I feel like I, the best version of myself comes out when, when I'm, you know, faced with something really hard. And, mm -hmm. um, I think it it 
kind of shows my grit a little bit, which, um, you know, I have always tried to be really humble, but I think one thing that I'm really proud of is my work ethic and my ability to really push forward. So. I love that answer. I love it. Well, Ella, again, this has been an absolute blast. It's so great to reconnect with you and we were going to have to do this again and not in six years from now, but hopefully sooner than that. Um, Wishing you all the best and uh, we'll definitely have to keep in touch. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. So a big thank you to Ella Easton for coming on this week's show and sharing more about her story. I invite you all to go follow her on Instagram and social media at Ella Easton on Insta. Go follow her new page, Disunderstood, where she'll be sharing more of her stories and other stories with those that are battling with dysautonomia. It is an incredible story. And again, this woman is incredible. So I just hope you took something from that episode that you can carry on in your everyday life. A big thank you to all you incredible listeners. I can't believe... I can't believe it. I, I, I get I get so excited every single week when we have these incredible episodes and the the listeners' responses and all that stuff. So thank you guys so much. Be sure to go check us out on Instagram and TikTok at Normal Guy Lazy Eye. You can go check out the Normal Guy Lazy Eye merch. We got some great hoodies, t-shirts, polos, Q-zips, you name it. Head over there. Go get yourself a Normal Guy Lazy Eye. Uh, something something nice. Something nice for Father's Day. Something nice for you. You name it. Anyways. Uh, That does it for all the shameless plugs. Excuse me. Almost lost my voice there. I'll see you all next week with another episode.